Orphan Black, the next chapter, is back for season two, and it's bigger than ever. The official continuation of the hit TV show stars Emmy Award-winning actress Tatiana Maslany as all of the clones. And this season, she's joined by original TV show cast members Jordan Gavaris as Felix, Evelyn Brochu as Delphine, and Christian Brune as Donnie. Season two picks up where season one left off with, spoiler alert, the secret of the clones finally exposed to the general public. Hundreds of previously unaware clones grapple with the news that they are part of a massive military science experiment. Meanwhile, anti-clone protesters fight to have the clones' rights restricted. Caught in the middle, the Sestras want peace, and when an unforeseen threat turns their world upside down, they must join forces with former enemies to protect the ones they love. Orphan Black, the next chapter, is available right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to listen and subscribe, or visit realm.fm for more information. All right, everybody, I wanted to welcome you to the, uh, the, the Legal Zoom uh, panel. Uh, I, actually, I don't even know the, the proper name for this panel, but uh, it's uh, the, the Sundance uh, TV Talks um, from Idea to Deal. Uh, right? uh, Legal Zoom is our sponsor. Um, I wanted to introduce our panelists first. Uh, we have, I have on my uh, right here, starting on my right, Michael Luisi, who is the president of WWE Studios, um, where he manages worldwide strategy. Michael was also for many years at uh, Miramax um, in the, both the Weinstein and post-Weinstein iterations as uh, a lawyer and as the head of operations there. Um, next to him, we have uh, Sasha Jenkins, who's a New York-based uh, producer, filmmaker, writer, musician, artist, and... Um, says here, chronicle of hip-hop and graffiti culture. Uh, most interestingly, uh, uh, current, I guess, is uh, uh, Sasha's latest film, Fresh Crest, is premiering here at the festival. Um, <clears throat> next to him, I have uh, uh, Shruti. Uh, Try my last name. Okay, Shruti uh, Ganguly, okay. <laughs> um, who's a New York-based filmmaker and, and uh, producer. She also has a number of films at this festival. Uh, Yosemite, which is at, not at this festival, is at Slam Dance, and then H, which just premiered this past uh, weekend here at the festival. Um, and next to uh, Shruti, we have uh, Joe Escalante, who um, is uh, <clears throat> a, a lawyer and um, also has a, uh, an entertainment lawyer um, for music and film, and also has a radio show on KEIB, um, which he just told me is Rush Limbaugh's home <laughs> in Los Angeles. <laughs> so he follows Ru the best of Rush, which is um, hopefully not totally appropriate. It's five minutes. Five minutes. <laughs> right. And then, um, uh, last but not least, we have uh, Mansi K. Shah, who is a partner at um, uh, Kasowitz, Benson, Torres, and Friedman in Century City, and uh, is a uh, corporate litigator for um, entertainment issues. She um, actually rep works with AMC and a lot of other big uh, networks and studios. So, um, welcome to the panelists. Um, I think what we're going to explore here is uh, what it takes to what you need to do when you start making a film, what are the issues that come up, and then what are the problems um, that result when you don't pay attention uh, to the right, right con legal concerns. And I think all of the panelists here have different experiences uh, with, with, uh, with the process of making a film and then delivering a film to a TV network or a film distribution company or a digital distribution company. Um, let me start with uh, um, the filmmakers, I think, in, in, in the group, uh, Sasha and Shruti. Um, you know, it, it, Sasha, a, a lot of your films have a lot of music in particular. Um, what, what, when you start to make a film, what, is one of, what are your first concerns as far as the, the business and legal affairs go? Uh, yeah, I mean, for instance, the film I, that's premiering here is called Fresh Dress. It's about the history of hip-hop fashion, and it's really a backdoor way to tell the 
history of hip hop and sort of how the culture was a reaction to the environment. Um, you know, so you're, you can't make a film about hip hop without having music in it. And as we all know, the music industry is in, um, you've heard of the Tidy Bowl Man? You know his domain, the toilet? That's where the music industry is right now. So people are scrambling to figure out how they're gonna make money. And since things aren't so great, you know, things that would have been a lot cheaper some years ago, you know, figuring out how much it's gonna cost takes a lot longer than you would imagine. So um, getting your music squared away uh, is crucial and will take a very long period of time because of the nature of where the industry is right now. Given where the industry is right now, have you actually found that there are new and creative ways to sort of address the concerns of the rights owners as well as get what you need? Um, in my instance, I've kind of been in the business for a lot of years, so I have the benefit of having good relationships with people. Um, it, it, it's a lot of variables. It's really hard to say. I mean, in instances of a song, like one song, Planet Rock, uh, has like 10 different people attached to it you know, 10 different writers. So I might have clearance from seven, but the, there are three holdouts, and that, you know, who knows what they're gonna want, you know? So it's, it's, uh, it's a consideration. Um, so in my case, um, I happen to be a musician, so some of the music I was able to craft for the film, but I had to spend some real money or figure out how to spend real money on some pretty marquee songs. Otherwise, if I, it, it wouldn't be authentic. So it's, it's, it's trying to find the right balance between source and, and original. Yes. Yeah. Shruti, what, what, what do you, when you embark on, on a new film, what, is one of your, what are your, sort of your major concerns that you know will, will, will uh, be essential to getting it delivered at some point in, in its life? So I have an MFA and an MBA, but I wish I had a JD yeah. because the number of contracts I read from start to finish, I, I, they're, they're, it's just innumerable. And I think, really, when you're going out to make a movie, you're setting up a company, and you're making this product that you're going to sell. So every aspect of just even having an LLC and dealing with contracts, whether it's with actors or with your crew or with music, music licensing to the sales side, to the distribution, to even some of your marketing strategies, you're constantly looking at contracts and figuring out the right, um, the right fit for your film. And it's different every time. So even though you think you, you've done this a few times before, it's every movie, every product is different. The creative is very different. And I work, I'm a director as well, but when I'm working as a producer, I work very closely with the director from even the script development stage. And one example in particular um, with Yosemite, which is closing Slamdance. So that's a movie with James Franco, and it's made with, it's been... Um, it was based on a couple of his stories growing up in Palo Alto, and one of the stories in particular had Spider-Man in it. And the director wanted to get the rights to Spider-Man. And I was like, at this budget, it's going to be really hard for an indie film to be able to do that. And instead of us just waiting around and getting caught in the legal rigmarole of that, why don't you create a comic that you can own and it becomes a lot more special to the film, which is what we did instead. So there's still that element and you can kind of be more creative with how you deal with certain legal issues so you can still stay authentic to certain elements of the film. So I feel like you're always gonna be dealing with different legal aspects and it's good to understand what you're gonna be dealing with from the script stage so you're not 
then at the end being like, oh my God, I couldn't get clearance for this and I shot it. Right. And then your entire vision, you know, that idea is completely affected. Well, I think, and tapping into your legal and business affairs background back in the Miramax days, Michael, um, would you say that, I, I, you know, what, what, what do you say about the notion that people might have that, you know, well, we'll put off locking those rights in and, and the film will get picked up and the studio will, will take care of it? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and, you know, you read, like, there have been a lot of high-profile sales here at the festival, and I think some people see that and think, okay, they negotiated an agreement, signed it, here's your check for the movie, and it's a very different process after that agreement is signed. Typically, very little money is paid on signature. Um, sometimes none is paid on signature. And the next step in the process of getting paid is looking at the delivery requirements that the studio has to release the movie, and that's both in terms of were all the proper releases obtained? Were all the clearances that you needed to get cleared? Is the music that Sasha was talking about, is it cleared for all of the uses that the studio wants to use it for? Sometimes you will clear it only for festival programming and then the studio needs to go back and clear it not only to be in the movie, but if you want to use it in the advertising for the movie. So if you've got great music, you sometimes want to cut that into your trailer and your TV spots, you've got to pay for the right to do that. You've got to get those clearances. And then there's the physical elements of the movie. Um, if the movie's getting a theatrical release as part of that distribution agreement, there's a whole set of elements that typically an independent producer cannot afford to create. So there's then often the negotiation after the negotiation of, what did you do? What didn't you do? How much is it now going to cost for us to clean that up? And often that purchase price will be reduced by that, that uh, effort of the studio to sort of clean up the chain of title and the delivery elements and the rest of it. So each movie is different. Uh, more seasoned filmmakers know that, and they build those deliverables into their budget. Typically younger filmmakers working on shoestring budgets. None of that is there, and the chain of title is often, uh, there's work to be done. So. Well, um, to that end, uh, uh, Shruti and Sasha, you guys both make, I mean, I actually don't know the budgets of your current film, but you're independent filmmakers um, in New York. Uh, what, you know, how do you um, approach, you know, in terms of how, like, lawyers are expensive and, and, you know, production counsel is expensive. How do you, what, when do you bring, how do you balance, where do you find the balance in, you know, paying for that, for that advice going into it and, and, and deciding what, what you can do on your own? I actually try and get lawyers in very early on in the process when we're starting to put the team together because the certain law firms will also take on projects from a lower budget as well if they really believe in the filmmakers or what the story is because it's something different and they want to get involved in. And, and that's actually really exciting. So it is expensive as well, but I believe that you can also find people that really also just want to work with you and that goes for the same of any aspect of you know, the team, what, you know, from your crew even, um, at that budget level. And there are ways around it, and they will get a certain percentage based on that budget. Great. So, Yeah, having a lawyer on your team early on is crucial. Um, at least with this film, I'm, I, have, I have a supreme advantage. I mean, CNN is my partner. Um, so they had a heavy hand in helping us getting to a place where we secured the right kind of legal representation. Yeah, how do you, Shruti, how do you go after then a law firm to find out if they're willing to take you on? And so, I, again, I've also been fortunate um, with some of my work. My first three movies are with James Franco and his production company that I've right. produced. And so we worked with his legal team on H, which is at Sundance now, 
because we had won a prize from the Venice Biennale and the film festival to make the film, it got attention and it was we were able to look at a range of lawyers and IFP was an advisor and so we went with the lawyer that they had recommended for us. So, but there's like, the, you know, there's kind of like five firms that most people in the indie film land right. kind of go to first to connect with. Um, speaking of, you know, one of the one of the ways, and even on the TV side, we notice producers making this argument um, with with regard to rights is is the notion of fair use. And Joe, you and I were discussing, you know, that that is 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 something that is 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 constantly under discussion. is very confusing in some ways, both I think to to executives as well as to the filmmakers. And what is you know, you had mentioned that that's one of the most common questions asked on your radio show. Right uh, on my radio show, we get. Uh, People who don't have, can't afford uh, to ask an attorney everything that they want to ask them. So, but that one of the most frequent questions is always involves uh, some kind of fair use issue. And for people that don't know, there's part of the Copyright Act. It's written into the Copyright Act that you are allowed to use other people's copyrighted work and make these what would otherwise be called derivative works uh, and and use it and distribute it and sell it and pay and don't pay nothing to the original uh, author of that work if it satisfies these four prongs. I'm not gonna go into all the prongs, but you go, you, you, but the, it's, it has, most of the time it has nothing to do with whether you've satisfied those prongs uh, for real, because none of these have been settled in, in court cases for sure. So every once in a while they get litigated and it's great. But most of the time, you're at the mercy of your, what I call the, on the radio show, the paranoid distributor. And the paranoid distributor is not, it doesn't recognize the, the your version of how you think you satisfied these four prongs. I'll give you like one of them. One of them would be, is your work making a valid, social, useful comment on the original work and not just taking it? You take the, the, most, the most famous example is, uh, I would say, uh, Ben Stein's movie, um, uh, the one about religion, where he took the song Imagine and he used it and he didn't pay, Yoko Ono controlled the rights, he didn't pay her, didn't ask for permission, he used a lot of it, and she, they went to court, and Ben Stein, uh, he won. Didn't have to pay them, didn't, have to, didn't ask for permission, a lot of litigation. So if you have, he had some leverage, and people, uh, I think the, the guy on that film was Michael uh, Donaldson, he's like the champion of taking risks, and, and going, uh, with a fair use argument to use this stuff, but if you're a, if you're a new filmmaker, they're not gonna they're not gonna buy that. It's too much trouble. So you have to. Well, this was was genius with the the Spider-Man thing. Trying to get a license for Spider-Man would be an amazing fantasy, if I can. Um, that's, <laughs> but but to create something new, um, and then yeah, you own that. And that if more of my callers would just stop trying to. Uh, take something else, and I, I really want to make a new version of this, and create their own stuff, and then sooner or later, people will be trying to pirate their stuff and, and make fair use stuff, and then I think that's, a, that's something to shoot for, so uh, I wish more people would do that, but I also wish more distributors would allow, would take some risks with fair use, because there's a lot of art that we never see because the distributor says no. I mean, one example from my film, you know, uh, it takes a lot of it takes place in New York, and um, in the early 70s, there was a a, a lot of gangs, um, and uh, a lot of black and Latino gangs in the Bronx, and they were really inspired by the Hells Angels and biker culture. And because they were of color, they were not allowed to be in the Hells Angels. 
So one woman who's a former gang member says, you know, you know what really inspired us? That film, Easy Rider. So right in that moment, we cut to a clip of Easy Rider, and then she goes on to say, you know... Yeah, you can't tell the story without showing, effectively without showing a clip of Easy Rider. To right. me, that's a fair use. Right. Not going to pass really, it. Really, is that what the argument you took was? That it was fair use to use it there? Well, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and there are some folks who got paid good money to say that they feel confident that that should be okay. Would, would you accept that for, for on air, Michael? Uh, it would probably be a further conversation. <laughs> um, moving on to, to oh, just, no, I'm just saying if he had, it's all about leverage, you know. Right. If George Lucas walks in and says this is fair use, it's fair use. Right, right. Um, Monty, we were talking also. I mean, one of the areas that you focus on, which is is sort of a a, a gravy area in a way, <laughs> like a really exciting thing. If if your film happens to make it to sort of having any back end. Uh, participation. I think that what do you, um, you know, it's a really hard thing to think that far ahead when you're putting together a film, and and and, and also it seems very unlikely. Uh, and and you know, I, I think that everyone seems to know that studios structure their their um, their net profit definition in a way that it you know it, it it's exceedingly rare perhaps to to right. see money on the back end. What do you do as a filmmaker? Do you think, or as a producer, to make sure that you have the best shot possible? And it, having clarity about that, and, and what do you recommend? Right, and following up on what Joe said, a lot of that is leverage. If you're George Lucas, you're gonna get a much better deal than if I were to walk in <laughs> and try to sell something. Uh, but what, what you're typically trying to do is, you've got two leverage points in order to negotiate that deal. The first is when you're actually selling it. Um, and that's typically the worst deal you're ever gonna have, because no one ever negotiates something later and makes it worse. So that's the worst you're ever gonna have. And then in success, you're able to negotiate that further. But I think the important thing is to realize there's a couple key areas with the back-end definition, you know, things like tax credits, distribution fees, things like that, that you wanna try to negotiate as much as you can on the front end. Because um, those are the things that are actually gonna move the needle. You know, I, I always tell clients, you're not really arguing for the points, you're arguing for the definition. You can get 20 points on something that's never gonna pay out and is gonna be zero. Um, what you'd rather have is half a point on something that's part of a billion dollar franchise. So you wanna be tied to someone's points. I used to do these points <laughs> things that I was, for years I made. Well, about the tax issue. credits, I mean, this, so do you, um, do you negotiate for your clients then that if the producers or the studio are, are availing themselves of a tax credit that that should go into the calculation of the back end? Different studios do different things, um, as I'm sure you, as I'm sure you guys know. Um, certain studios are more likely to put in the tax credit in their standard definition. Uh, Sony is one of those studios. AMC is actually switching to that model. There's other studios. I used to work at NBC where that was definitely not a standard give, um, and is something that you had to have a tremendous amount of leverage. And even even then, I think now that's the type of thing that people are pushing back on a lot. When you're with some of the more major studios, you gotta keep in mind that they've got a lot of losses. Uh, you know, they're, the number of hits you get each year, whether it's for film or television, you're looking at maybe a handful. And that handful is trying to cover the costs of the dozens of things that didn't make it that year. So I think that type of credit, again, it's gonna go to leverage. If you can get it, you always want that. 
<laughs> um, the question is whether you can get it, and as you, be, as you get more leverage, and if it's something that becomes very successful, particularly for a television product versus a film, if you're still attached to it, it's something that's still on the air, you're gonna have a lot more leverage in order to change that definition, because they're gonna want you to keep producing that. With a film, it's a little bit different, because it's usually a one-time thing, and it's done, unless if it's some sort of franchise or something, then you'll get a little more leverage um, with the next picture or the one after that, and oftentimes you can try to negotiate back to inception, uh, which is what you want to do, so it doesn't really matter what happened in the years leading up to that, but you really want to try to negotiate back to inception. Great. Uh, you know, uh, Joe, we were having an interesting conversation upstairs, and you mentioned that another one of the big questions that uh, people have on your radio show is about the security of their work, and I think you guys could also comment to this as well, like the anxiety that filmmakers have, especially in this day and age with with, you know, access. Yeah. What, what, do you, what, do, what, do you, what are people most concerned about and what do you advise them in, with, with regard to that concern? People are, are overly paranoid that someone's going to, some people, are overly paranoid that someone's going to steal their work and they let it affect their creativity and they hide their work and they don't want anyone to see their work. They won't send their work out when they should and they're starting out. I, my attitude is send it out to more people. Uh, if someone steals it from you, this is especially true in a song, if someone steals your song, it, and, and you're new, it's the best thing that ever happened to you. And so, and if, you, and if that was the only song that you had in you, the only one hit song that you had, you, it, that uh, field wasn't for you uh, anyway. But, it, it, and it's the same with writing. If you have one story, they stole my story. Well, your story's not protectable. This is a huge, uh, on my radio show. I have an idea for a reality show. I want to protect it. Well, your idea is not protectable anyway. You can, uh, if you make a fleshed out, uh, creative expression of our, your idea, you can protect it. It's so easy to, to copyright uh, scripts and treatments and through LegalZoom. I, of course, I, I work for LegalZoom. I know their system. Very easy to do it. Very easy to trademark uh, things that you create. But it's, it's a shame when they hide it, and it's a shame when they register it with the Writers Guild thinking that's going to do anything. When, when it'll do... It's, it's, it's something... But for $35 plus whatever LegalZoom uh, charges, uh, you, you could have protected it and got attorney fees. Uh, if, if you ever had an infringement, law firms will take your case. Uh, if you just did it with the WGA, uh, the, the, uh, you can't get a law firm to take it on a contingency. You have no case when someone uh, steals your work. But in the most part, nobody's going to steal your work. It's very rare. And for $35 plus the fees, you're going to get you it protected anyway. Just do it. Well, I was going to say, a lot of people have ideas. Most people have ideas. Mm -hmm. People have great ideas, but it's those who make those ideas actually come to life and first. Yep. And right now, with technology and everything evolving, you just can't be as precious anymore. Be precious about certain things that really matter to you that you want to invest certain time in, but the media medium has changed. Right. And you have to get your work out there and just get better at making work. And also perspective. It's really about creating something that only you can create. I mean, some ideas are very general. You know, I want to do a reality show about a frog farm. A lot of other people might have that same idea, but what is... Really? What is my... Yeah, really. But I, what is my I way to do that. What is my way in? Yeah. And then outside of that, I come from the world of hip-hop, so if you take something from me, I'm going to come see you. <laughs> right. I think a lot of, as that's a lawyer, a lot of times, that's a better solution. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I will come see you. <laughs> Michael, what, what, 
What have you noticed um, lately? Is 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 you know in, in in your you know on the distributor side? What is what what problems do you run into the most once content gets to you guys? That really get in the way of getting things done. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's some of the issues that I touched on in the earlier question. It's it's the clearances. It's the chain of title to the underlying rights of the movie. Um, typically, there's just not the, the time or the resources to do everything that you need to do. And oftentimes, there's not even sufficient um, insurance coverage, you know, errors and omission insurance for the movie. So it's spending a lot of time getting that movie into shape from a, from a business and a legal perspective to actually start exploiting it, you know, in, in a significant way. Um, and, and we spend a, a lot of time, we do both productions and acquisitions, and on the acquisitions, um, typically it's months uh, between signing the deal and getting all of that, those delivery requirements, you know, satisfied so that we can actually start thinking about marketing and releasing the movie. Did you guys do documentaries as well, or...? Um, we do a lot of documentaries on the TV side of our business, but on the motion picture side, um, because we're targeting first and foremost a certain uh, segment of the audience, they just don't translate well for our fan base, so typically we don't really do documentaries, but on TV we do. Um, I mean, uh, uh, Sasha, have you ever, you know, you, you did a documentary that's here, um, and it, does the notion, do you worry about um, the boundaries for libel and slander and, and that sort of those concerns? Is that something that uh, is in the back of your head at all? Well, I have a bit of a journalism background, so right. I have a sense of what might be crossing the line. Um, right. But there, there, you know, there are all kinds of instances in the film, you know, um, for instance, I, I don't even know if this is off, to off topic, but in the Bronx, uh, there was a street where people would go to buy their clothes at a discount, and there were two stores that were simply known as Jew Man. I'm not yeah. making this up, right? <laughs> so, you know, uh, that was a place where you would go to get particular sneakers. Uh, a rap group, Kid and Play. Like, oh, you know, one time I went to the Bronx, I was on my way up, and I got robbed on my way back from the Jew man. Okay, one person said that. Then uh, this Asian shoe designer tells a similar story. You know, um, in the Bronx, they had uh, color sneakers that you, couldn't, you can only get in the Bronx, and I went to Jew man. And then someone else, a uh, sneaker collector, Latin guy, was like, yeah, I went to Jew man. I mean, when... That was sort of first in circulation, you know, folks at CNN and in general were like, whoa, like, that's a little weird. But there's enough sort of documentation that that was, the euf that was what it was called. That was a euphemism. So, so I think um, they're suggesting we open the room up to uh, questions. If anyone has any? Hi. Um, thanks. Um, I'm a filmmaker as well, and right now I'm actually was really wondering about errors and omissions because I was trying to buy it from our film and um, I, I've been told to wait until we get a distributor. Um, and so I'm not sure what the right steps are for that. Well, you're going to have to have it at some point in the process to release the movie. There's no film that gets released without errors and omissions insurance. The benefit to waiting um, can be that you might get what you think is proper errors and omissions insurance and the distributor will look and say, well, those numbers are wholly insufficient. We've got to go back and renegotiate it anyway. But as a practical matter, no one is going to release your movie without the E&O coverage. So either you do it now or you do it later. And it's just a function of how well-versed you become in what your potential distributors might require as part of that delivery process. Right. I mean, I think that's the hardest part is trying to forecast what all those expenditures are going to be. 
upon distribution. I, I would say work, the right. more work that you can do making sure that you've cleared everything okay. in your movie, the easier that you know process is going to be. Great. Right. Thank you. Any other questions? Hi. So um, I'm actually shooting my first feature film this fall. Um, and I'm wondering if there's any, I have a, an actor who's also going to be acting as a producer for the film, kind of that relationship, um, also helping with financing um, along with other financers. But I'm wondering if any of you have advice for possible pitfalls with that. The, the worst one is if you uh, are going to take investors, you can run afoul of the Security and Exchange Commission if you don't do it the uh, proper way. And I, that's not my field. I don't know if, if anyone else here is, is uh, into that. But if you're taking investors, you got to follow certain federal rules. Can't just go out there willy nilly and uh, start asking for for money on the street corner. Of course. I, mean, I work with an actor who also is a producer um, on a lot of movies, and I think you have to really distinguish what those roles are as well, and have certain agreements in place, and really understand expectations and intentions, um, because that relationship will affect everything that you're doing. Um, from the creative of your movie to the deals. And you just need to have another producer who's also not maybe as involved, who really understands the contract side of things. Thank you. I apologize. I don't remember how to pronounce your name. My question is, with all the buzz that happened with the interview, how did that affect your film as far as the James Franco? Well, I had our first movie that we worked on together came out the week before <laughs> called The Color of Time um, with James Franco, Mila Kunis, Jessica Chastain, and Zach Braff. And James plays the poet C.K. Williams, and it's an adaptation of a collection of poetry. And really, I mean, in terms of how it affected our film, I mean, they're very, very different projects. A lot of people got confused and thought, I produced the interview. And <laughs> so, <laughs> very, very different movies, poet drama to something else. Um, and I think it really just got, I mean, our press, a lot of people unfortunately just wanted to talk to James about the interview and legally they were not allowed to comment um, with their contracts with Sony. So, if anything, it got our film more attention, so I was happy because, you know, this poet drama got, you know, more people know about it. All, all press is good press. Yeah. And I thought she was a model. Yeah. <laughs> Anything else? Back there. Uh, I work a lot in... I actually, this is more picture-based because I, I work a lot in docu-reality TV and we use a lot of public domain images. And I'm kind of wondering about the fine line with public domain when it comes before, you know, 1923. There are still documents from that time and images that you can't really use because someone still owns the copyright. I'm wondering how you kind of walk that fine gray line of stuff that's public domain but it's not really public domain. Well, there's a. I would start with a book. Have you have you seen the book from Nolo Press called Public Domain? Uh, it, it, it's it's a great book and it has a worksheet in it. Uh, for all kinds of, uh, you find something, you follow the little trail, 
and it'll give you an idea. And But it, then again, you can go to your distributor and say, I went through the, uh, the worksheet on page 123 of a NOLO press book, and then they're not going to be too impressed. But you could eliminate some, some stuff uh, pretty easily that way. I use that book. When people, I have it sit, when people ask me questions, I have it in my radio show. I have it sitting in the corner. And I take a break, and I go look at it, and I come back. I, I need that book. It's good. It's good. Anything else? For the filmmakers, a quick question. I'm curious about any um, legal or financial obstacles that you overcame that had a surprising benefit on your film. Uh, well, you know, still some things happening right now, but uh, <laughs> there, there were some songs that we thought were gonna be way more expensive than they were gonna be, and they wound up being a fraction of what we thought they were going to be, so that was incredible. But then on the flip side, there were songs that we thought were going to be way cheaper and wound up costing a lot more. So it's a lot of variables. I think you're always going to have financial and legal challenges on every film. It's just figuring out how to deal with them, and it's going to be very unique to that project. And sometimes when you're dealing with low budgets, you just have to be, it forces you to actually be more creative. Um, and for example, on H, we, the directors really loved the band Blonde Redhead and wanted to work with Blonde Redhead. Um, but what, what, we, what we did was we got Kazuma Kino, the lead singer, interested in the story, and she actually composed original music for the film. And then we were able to license music um, from the band that matched our budget. And they played our party last night, so that was pretty <laughs> cool too. <laughs> Um, so, with social media and, like, all of the tweets in the world are, like, are they technically public domain? And if you were going to use that in a movie, or, like, all of the Facebook, like, the terms of use stuff where they can use, like, the information that users put on the internet, would a filmmaker be able to use that? Is that public domain? Or... Are you talking as if you have a character who happens to be using Facebook and that's in the story? Or if, or if there was like a documentary about social media, would you be able to use actual people's like real stories or stuff like that? To like photograph their Facebook page and yeah. start going. It would depend on the use. And if you're making a documentary about that and like you watch the news, they, they, will, they will show Facebook uh, all the time but they're under a different thing than a filmmaker, and they also don't have that paranoid distributor at the end. At the end, you got it, someone's gonna say, these Facebook logos, they gotta go. Do you have a release from this person? Uh, well, no, this is a story about how this person relates to other people on the internet, and we don't interview them, we don't wanna disturb them, we're just talking about it, and obviously it's in the public, this person doesn't care if millions of people see it. There's no damages from the person uh, on the Facebook. If you show her face, no damages, the damage would be, too many people saw me. This is my private information. Well, you put it out there, how did you know the same amount of people or more wouldn't just you know, look at it on the internet? But that doesn't help with the distributor. And so you're at the mercy. So you go to where you think you're gonna sell it and you find out where they weigh in on things like that, talk to other filmmakers that have gone through it and otherwise you're gonna be distributing that film yourself. Which I've done. You know, it's fine. <laughs> Anyone else? 
great. Um, thanks so much, you guys. This is a great panel. And thanks for sharing all your information and experience and expertise. Thank, Thank you, you, Christian. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks.